Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Black metal to me is just the ultimate act of spiritual rebellion. Welcome to the Dreams of Consciousness podcast. If you'd be so kind, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Neil Jameson. I am the main member, I guess is the, the best way to put it, the longest running member of the black metal band Krieg. Longest running founder. At one point, you handled most of the instrumentation as well, right? Yep. I uh, Initially, for my demos, I did pretty much everything. I utilized... I, I didn't know how to play drums at the time. So what I would do is 
I had a keyboard and I would just utilize a drum sound on that and just tap the keys, which sounded just as shitty as, as the description sounds. But <laughs> eventually I was able to talk some, some session drummers into working with me. And then down the line, I was able to start working with just full bands of musicians because I've always been a much better songwriter than I am player, just not steady, lots of fuck ups. And so I've kind of, I've, for a long time, I utilized what I considered session members. And then about 10, 11 years ago, I actually got the the formation of, of what could be considered the first actual legitimate band of, of Krieg with members who are, are still playing with me now, 10 years later. And we'll speak about those members and how you guys put songs together in a little bit. You, you stated that you consider Krieg to be a black metal band. Uh, I'm curious, what does black metal mean to you? What is black metal? I mean, it, it's changed so much in the, the almost 30 years that I've been doing this. But the core tenet to me, and I know that, that a lot of people would disagree with this because they basically believe it has to be satanic, but the, the core tenet of black metal and, and what it means to me is it's spiritual rebellion. It is walking your own path creatively, philosophically, in your day-to-day life. It, it's, it's just a, a mindset of knowing that, that you're outside of the norm and that what you create is going to be something that is going to be scrutinized and uncomfortable for a lot of quote unquote normal people to talk about. And so black metal to me is just the ultimate act of spiritual rebellion. I noticed you didn't say blast beats or tremolo picking or keyboards or anything like that. Would you say black metal is more of a a musical philosophy than it is a, a musical style? With so many different styles and subgenres and and just people adding their own spins to the whole thing that I would say that it is more of a mindset, more of a philosophical, esoteric idea than necessarily a set rule book or, or, or genre, sonically anyway. I mean, there, there, there's definitely you know certain tenets that, that are, are threads that, that hold everything together, being you know the harsh guitars, tremolo picking just a, a, a more of a sense of darkness to the music than some genres would have most actually there's you know a, a lot of genres that run concurrently to, to black metal that, that you could say definitely have that kind of, of darkness to it I mean, a lot of neo-folk or you know dark wave industrial that kind of thing and then also a lot of darker country music or hip-hop there there's a, a lot of different genres that sit comfortably next to black metal but it really is more just a a philosophy than just a style of music and you mentioned you've been doing this uh for almost 30 years now uh krieg was one of the the earliest adherents i guess it's the word of what came to be considered u.s black metal would you say that there's a difference between black metal from the u.s and other uh, places in the world other other scenes in the world Initially, and, and a lot of that was really an aesthetic difference because you, you had bands, you know, Profanatica, those guys came from being members of Incantation. So there was kind of a, a, a slight death metal element to it. 
Vaughn is very obviously, you know, has a, a very strong death metal element to it. The original American black metal outside of maybe Demon Seed, Black Funeral, and eventually Juice Scariot all kind of had that root in death metal. And even Juice Scariot in a way, because Andrew had played in Sarcophagus and Sarcophagus was initially a death metal band. So initially that was the, the biggest difference between us and elsewhere. Then 15, 20 years pass by and you start having bands that are reaching outside of the traditional borders of, of black metal that have really made an impact worldwide. Something like, like Death Heaven, Wolves in the Throne Room, going back a little bit earlier, Velvet Cocoon, bands that, that kind of jumped genres a little bit. The the one thing that, that American black metal had, especially from, I want to say around 2002 and onward, is an adventure, a more adventurous spirit where we really did a lot to, to mix different genres. You heard a lot more blending of punk and hardcore and, and black metal that, that really kind of originated in the States. A lot of the, the shoegaze that became, you know, the, the whole black gaze thing that's going on now, a lot of that originated here. And then a lot of bands that just kind of philosophically stepped outside of the box, something, you know, like, like a band like liturgy, like them or, or, or not. I mean, there, there's absolutely no denying that philosophically they brought something new to the table. And that was a, a time period in, in U.S. black metal where you could just really see everybody's outside influences where we're starting to shine through a little bit more. And so that was another point in time where we were definitely, you know, different than, than other scenes. But now nowadays, everything with how the internet is and the ease of collaboration, the ease of recording, the ease of distribution, I really don't see things in a geographical sense anymore. I see it more as it's this large global, I, I hesitate to use this, the word community, but that's really the, the best way that I can I can describe it, where it's just this large global organism that sure, you know, you, you have bands that are very proudly from, you know, they are very proud of where they're from. You have bands that, that tend to stick in the styles that their geograph or geography is mostly known for. And then you just have other bands that are just completely unclassifiable that, that you have no idea from listening to them where they're from. The whole cultural identity, the whole geographic identity is just something that has kind of been wiped away. And it's been wiped away in a lot of different subcultures and, and, and forms of the art. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a good thing or, or a bad thing, but regardless of opinions on it, it's just how subcultures have evolved. I spoke with Daniel, who wrote the book about U.S. black metal, which you also uh, contributed to. And I'm, I'm, I think you know Daniel from working with Decibel as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And my take on it, you know, <laughs> and, you know, how true this is, I, I don't know. But this is my outsider take on it, is U.S. black metal emerged once you had people who could record on their own. You know, once they had access to the technology and the software and whatever was necessary for a person to, to create their own band. Like, the thing that separates U.S. black metal from other black metal scenes isn't necessarily like the ability to find band members or collaborators. It was the ability to 
you know, this kind of like spirit of, of independence that allowed someone to, to put their own vision of what they wanted to do into the world. And so once you get bands like, you know, you mentioned Wolves in the Throne Room, you know, Zasser is, is you know, probably in there and, and Krieg as well, you know, you, you started off making your own music and I feel like very quickly lost interest in what black metal meant to other people. Like you had your own vision of black metal, which, you know, whether or not you found other people to collaborate with, you were you were more interested in your own vision of, of what you wanted to do rather than, you know, what somebody in a, a record shop in Norway uh, considered to be true or false black metal. Well, I mean, it's definitely there was there is that that, that sense of, of the cliche of American individuality, which runs through a lot of the, I'm going to say early 2000s was, was when we really started noticing a lot of one-man projects popping up, Disaster and Leviathan being the most notable as far as quality, but you also had uh, Dragar, Crevane, plenty of others that, that all just kind of popped up. It was strange because in 98, 99, you maybe knew maybe 15 or 20 other bands or individuals who were doing things in, in the States. And then within two or three years, you know, there was now dozens and eventually hundreds, and I'm sure there's thousands now. Everyone with a laptop, right, has a black metal band? Oh, Jesus Christ, unfortunately. <laughs> there, there's always the, the, the old cliche of, of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And I think that that definitely applies to, to all forms of creativity. Yeah, there, there's definitely, when I started out, I didn't really care about what anybody thought of it. I was making music for myself. I was doing what I was feeling and, and what I wanted to hear. And it, it took years after that before I started having any kind of concern as to what a fan base would say or, you know, how reviews would look or, or, or any kind of that external validation that I initially wasn't seeking, but just being a part of the, going from being a part of, of the underground scene and then becoming kind of a cog in the music industry, there is it's unavoidable to seek out some kind of validation because it is constantly shoved in your face, especially now with the internet. Everybody has an opinion on what you're doing and they will make sure that you know about it. They will hunt you down and let you know what their opinion is, regardless of if their opinion is, is, has any validity or any merit or you know if the person who they have the opinion on even gives a fuck about it. It's just kind of as it is now. And so it took me a long time and this naturally occurred in between the last record and, and the current one where I just started to be able to let go of that again and to really focus in on my satisfaction with what I was doing and doing the record that I would want to hear. And if other people like it, that's great. If they don't, I don't care. I, I did something that for the absolute love of it, and it's been a long time since I've been able to record a, an album that I didn't have any kind of concern about external factors and how people felt about it, what what you know the how they reacted to it, and that was very liberating, especially since I'm in my mid forties now. You don't necessarily expect to have that kind of experience where you feel the freedom that you felt when you were. 16 and just, you know, putting together, cobbling together songs in your basement. Well, speaking of cobbling together songs in your basement, tell me about the the early years of Krieg. Uh, 
were your intentions specifically to to write and release black metal yeah definitely black metal was something that, that i heard towards the end of 1994 samael of opposites transylvania hunger by dark throne those, those were kind of like the the first initial albums that i heard and it was just so different from everything else that i was listening to because I was, I was starting to get pretty deep into not really underground death metal. It, it was more like you could say overground death metal, the kind that you would find in, you know, like a, a corporate record store, like Camelot Music or, or one of those ones that still existed in the 90s. And so I was playing in a death metal band called Abominus. And I started bringing more black metal ideas to the table. And it wasn't really the direction that they were going in. And so that was when I decided, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to do a demo. I'm going to see, I'm going to record a tape and, and, and you know, just see, see what I, I can do. And I mean, I sat on that tape for almost a year once, once I recorded it, the Imperial Endless Path demo. It wasn't until I got kicked out of Bominus that I dusted it off and was like, okay, well, why don't I see how... How this does, you know, I get into the the tape trading scene, which I was an avid participant in until probably the early two thousands. And so the the early days of Krieg was really just me trying to again record the the kind of black metal that I wanted to hear, and it was heavily influenced by the first Ancient album, the first Gorgoroth record, all the early Dark Throne records. Basically, you know, like a, a pretty deep appreciation for the Norwegian bands because that was what I was exposed to because I, I lived in Ocean City, New Jersey, and I wasn't really able to to get out of there too often because I was young. I didn't have a car. Me and a few friends would, you know, eventually would skip school fairly frequently and take buses up either to New York or Philadelphia. And then you could go to like the the underground record stores there. And that would be more of the when we started being exposed to the darker, more underground stuff. And so that had like a pretty big impact too, because that introduced me to, you know, the older American bands. That's it, how I heard like Sarcophagus and how I heard Profanatica and, and all of that. And so probably from in between 95 and 97, uh, the bulk of my time was spent just devouring these records and doing my best to try to do it myself, sort of like the old, punk spirit of 77 you know like go out and, and form your own band kind of thing you know if you can do better do it and so i i did that and then eventually i started communicating with other bands in you know involved in the american scene and like i said there's only like 15 or 20 of them at the time so it was a pretty tight-knit circle and then you know all these bands we would get together at milwaukee metal fest every year and then there just started being black metal fests or black metal shows around and that was when i kind of took the the next step to where i felt that this was something that, that i was going to completely dedicate my life to and so that kind of takes us into like 99 2000 once like i i've started you know figuring out that i was going to do some live shows pull together a band for that i was uh, live bassist to both judas iscariot shows the one in texas and the one in germany so I was really going from being just this kid in, in my, you know, it, hanging out in my room and, and just, you know, devouring these records into an active participant in what I felt was a movement at the time. And it, it really was, it just was not 
not not a, a very large movement, but I mean, there's definitely there's enough of us that created an impact that, that still exists in this country today. So.
was your recording setup like on those those early releases? You you talked about manually putting in uh, the drum beats with a keyboard. Yeah, like I couldn't even figure out a, a drum machine to save my life. I'm not good at math, so that was you know it was it was just overwhelming for me. So like the the recording setup was one track guitar, the drum computer, one track vocals, maybe a track of bass if if I felt like it. I was actually where I was recording was my guitar teacher had a small studio. And so eventually it went from me going there and, you know, taking lessons, which obviously I wasn't very proficient at, into me going there with a CD and being like, hey, teach me how to play this, to eventually us talking and me deciding to to record with him. And then, so outside of like that, that fairly primitive setup, we also, you know, would figure out ways to bring samples in, which, you know, back in the day, it was pretty difficult. So like I had like cassettes of, of old renaissance music or you know ocean sounds rain you know really cliche shit but these are all things that then we would kind of layer into the demos and to give it its own i wanted to paint a picture sonically and so i was able to utilize sampling to to do that and i was able to for a few years after that i continued doing sampling and and then that sort of thing because it was one, I had a, a pretty big interest in like cold meat industry, industrial style uh, music. So it was my way of, of kind of adding a, a quote unquote electronic element to it. But it was also a way to be able to make up for any of my instrumental shortcomings because I was still able to try to tell that story by utilizing these different sounds. So were you recording with like a Tascam or something like that? Or were you recording on, on early DAW software? It was just like some shitty hard drive. I, I can't actually remember the the program they used. I mean, I know that we were recording to D88 tapes, but I don't remember the program at all. I mean, this is... Okay. No, I was just curious if, if you're using a computer, if you're using like a like a physical 8-track or something like that. No, it was, it was computer. It wasn't Pro Tools. It was one of those like really early... <laughs> yeah, I remember. Very yeah. difficult where you had to... You'd either record to a, a D88 or you would have a... a data CD that you couldn't play in anything except on a computer through this program. And then you would have to play that data CD. And then while that was playing, you would have a tape deck and you'd be dubbing it off. That. I mean, it was a, quite the process. <laughs> DIY or die, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, you know, there, there was no other way to do it. I, I didn't know how to record on a four track or anything like that. And, and there wasn't really an internet at the time for me to be able to look that up. And I you know, couldn't go to the public library and look, you know, Hey, how do I record a black metal demo? Those books weren't written yet. So <laughs> I had to rely on my guitar teacher who also ran, you know, a, a small studio called orchard studio where I did a, a lot of my demo work and then even some post-production work or work for other bands up until when I moved from New Jersey to Virginia in 2015. So I, I had a good working relationship with him for, for 20 years. And I mean, he was really big into, you know, the Beatles revolver was his favorite record. So he was, while he didn't understand what I was doing, he was really just musically adventurous and would always try to offer suggestions and show me recording techniques I'd never thought about. And so here I am, this kid that is, is purely interested in a hundred percent underground black metal. And here's this, older gentleman who is fantastic at multiple instruments 
and you know is super big in into psychedelic stuff super big into old 60s stuff and he's trying to show me how those guys would would do things and so having that influence adding in on, on what i was doing helped me create something that i mean i wasn't reinventing the wheel i've, I've never done that with any music that i've been involved in no matter the band but it was something that was unique and it was a perspective that i don't think a lot of black metal at least at the time had because everybody was still very you know you were into black metal and and only black metal there wasn't any kind of outside influence in, until a few years after that yeah how how soon before you were working in a studio with a band when the first Krieg record, Rise of the Imperial Hordes, was recorded. I had the bassist from Abominus had joined up with me. And so they came in and they were doing, did some bass tracks, did, you know, wrote some guitar tracks. And we went into the studio and, and I mean, we went into a, a fairly professional studio, completely unprepared. We songs we didn't have a drummer and i had no idea at the time that you are supposed to record drum tracks first and then everything else falls on top of that so we recorded absolutely everything samples layer and layer of vocals guitar keyboards all that stuff and then i was like okay so now we need to find a drummer and so fortunately the studio was in touch with frank gamble who was the drummer of bloodstorm at the time and so we were able to get him in to do session on on the record and it was the first time that i'd ever worked with a, a live drummer outside of you know being an abominus but that wasn't necessarily even a, a i don't want to say that it wasn't a real band but it, it, it certainly was you know a pretty primitive attempt at being a real band and so that was the first time that i'd ever really worked with other musicians in a, a nice studio setting and for whatever reason the next two albums up through destruction ritual I recorded guitar first and then let the, the the drummer come in and do whatever. And so it created definitely like a, a, a unique aesthetic. It was, it was very chaotic, almost kind of, you know, jazz improv in a way, black metal improv, I guess, which did eventually become its own obnoxious little subgenre. But it wasn't until I did, Black House in 2002. That was the first time that I went in with like a full band with songs with, you know, drummer that, that recorded his parts first. Everything was, you know, done in a, in a controlled manner. And it was kind of, it felt like graduating high school and starting to, you know, go into college. It was just this whole other phase of life where I, I felt that I accomplished everything that I could with the more chaotic aspect of what I was doing. And it was time to actually show that I could write songs underneath all of the, the noise and all that. So that was when I started, you know, having session guitar players play what, what I was writing. And it was just a time for me to prove that I was more than just this noisy mess that I'd been making for five years. And you mentioned that for the last decade, you've been working with the same lineup. When did, when did you make the choice to, to have an actual band rather than just working with session players? I mean, it kind of just accidentally happened. We we were doing, you know, like occasional shows. And for the most part, like Joe from Noctuary would fly out from California and he would play guitar. And then I had Chris Grigg from Woe. He was doing drums. And we just do like, you know, a fest appearance here and there, show here and there. Consistent people, but nobody who was ever like a member, a quote unquote member of the band. And then 
we got offered or I got offered uh, a tour in 2012 with Wolfhammer. It was a 12-date tour that went from Chicago out to Boston and then back to Ohio in the most bizarre routing I've ever had. And so at that point, I, I needed a drummer and I'd worked with Jason Dost for, uh, he'd done like session for me once. And so I just asked him like, hey, do you want to do this 12 date tour? And so he became the first permanent member of the band. And then at the time, Alex Poole from, he'd done Chaos Moon and, and Esoterica prior to, to this, he moved up from Tennessee at, into Philadelphia. And so, you know, we got along really well. So I just asked him, I was like, hey, do you want to, you know, do this. And so he, he came on and he joined and he's, you know, still with me now. And so it was, it's the core of the band has been the, the three of us. And then our other guitarist, Sean Riley, he was session for me multiple times in 2009, 2010. And then eventually we just asked him to join in, in 2015. And Bill, our bass player, he's, he's been with the band probably the shortest amount. He's been here for six years, but it's really, it, it, it's a, great experience to have that kind of stability and also to be able to have that kind of sounding board because then I have people that are going to tell me if my ideas aren't good since I've you know I, I've, I've been rolling with what I want to do for you know 20 some years and then so I, I have these guys that are like okay that's cool but here's another way to look at it here's another thing to do none of them besides Alex were like rooted in in black metal you know they, they did a lot of death metal grind that kind of stuff and so they bring this kind of, well, at least initially, I mean, now they've all been in the band long enough that, that you can say they've definitely been rooted in black metal for a while. But like initially they brought this kind of, I don't want to say naive, naivete to the project because that, that sounds insulting, but they brought this kind of freshness that- Like an outsider's perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, fresh outside perspective. And so that that helped a lot. I'm curious, during the early years where- were you interested in Krieg being a live unit and playing shows and things like that? I never even really thought about it because, you know, I didn't know anybody close to me that was doing this. I didn't know, you know, how to, to go about finding shows or anything like that. I mean, I know that, that there was a club in Pensacola, New Jersey, I think it was called G. Willikers, and they used to do like Incantation, Pro Fanatica, Mortician, like tons of tons of, of things. And that was gone by the time I, I'd gotten old enough to be able to, to head out into the world. So it really wasn't something I ever thought about until I did the show with Juice Iscariot in Texas. And Andrew was like, hey, you know, have you considered doing Creek Live? And you know, you can just get some session people together and, and, and here's how you do it. And so the first few years, like I didn't think of about having other members. I didn't really even think about spreading the music that much, you know. It, it didn't really occur to me that these were things that, that I would eventually have the opportunity to do. Has playing live changed your perspective on, on some of the, that earlier material? Yeah, it makes it very difficult to play it because most of it is so chaotic that it doesn't really have any kind of real structure to it. it it's all just so loose, so you can't, with very few exceptions on some of the songs, you can't just drop that into a, a band that's used to playing you know, very regimented music and be like, okay, so you know, figure this out. It's just, it just doesn't translate well. And it doesn't blend well with what we've done the last 20 years or so, you know, since Black House. So, yeah, it, it, it just, you know, the, the older stuff 
I, I really don't think about it as far as a, a live setting. It's just too difficult to replicate.
So at the time that we're having this conversation, you will have a new album called Ruiner, which will be released on the 13th of October through Profound Lore Records. We, we spoke about the way you're songwriting and, and uh, your, your approach to music has changed over the years. With Ruiner, it seems like there are a lot of ideas outside of you know, the conventional approach to black metal has, has been um, integrated into your music. When you spoke about genres that are adjacent to black metal or, or overlap, in, overlap with black metal in terms of you know, having a dark feeling, having the same kind of a rebellious approach, which genres would you say you were drawing from for this album? So there's pretty much three, three genres that, that this record is based around. Obviously black metal and mostly going back to my youth and really finding influence from the early Norwegian stuff, the old emperor records, Gorgoroth records, dark throne, et cetera. Then for, I, I've have a deep love for crust punk. And so I've been trying to throw elements of that into my music for the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, we've done a doom cover. We've had, you know, plenty, plenty of songs that are just like absolute crust bangers. And so I tried to add a little bit of that in while not being overwhelming this time around. And then the third genre is post-punk. Huge fan of, you know, stuff like Killing Joke, Joy Division, New Order, The Fall, The Smiths. So there, there's a lot of that emotion and, and, and kind of song texturing put in. So Bruner is, is really kind of a, a large amalgamation of that. Mostly, you know, me trying to rip off the first Gorgoroth record, but I just wanted to create a record that I would want to listen to when I was 15 or 16. And in terms of composing the album, are you still mostly composing on your own and then bringing it to the band? Or is it more of a collaborative process this time around? So it, it's collaborative, but it's collaborative in, in a way that is different from any of the, the collaborations we've done before where, you know, like someone would bring some riffs to the table or a song to the table. And I would either say, you know, yay or nay. This time around, I wrote all eight songs and we went into the studio and recorded every, all eight songs. And then we sent it to Alex because he, he lives kind of far outside of Philadelphia. He doesn't really wander into the city too much. And I don't really blame him. And he's got a whole bunch of recording stuff at his place. And so he took the eight songs that we had, you know, it was, two tracks, guitars, one track bass, drums, vocals. And he went in and he overdubbed many, many layers of solos or phantom sounds or just what he was inspired to do from the songs themselves. So even though there wasn't much face-to-face -face collaboration this time around, it really truly was a collaborative effort between him and myself. The record wouldn't sound the way that it does with without e what either of us brought to the table. So it was. I, I've worked with him now in in you know a few different projects as well as in, in Krieg for a long time, and this was the first time where we really. He's always somebody that I've really enjoyed working with. I think that that he's uh, the musically just very adept and and very creative, and very underrated. And so this time was like the first time where like he really kind of just let loose with what I had and that gives it just a, a feeling that, that it, it wouldn't have if it was just 
you know, maybe he brings a riff or two to the table and that's it. Like just having him overlay on top of all that really just makes the, the record come alive. When did you actually start? When did you start working on Ruiner? So the first session was in September of last year. It was three songs. We were going to be doing a split with the Canadian hardcore band Withdraw, which we're still going to do. But once we finished those three songs, and I sent it to Alex, we all kind of just had a feeling that this was different, that maybe this wasn't for a split. Maybe this was going to be the the seeds to the next record. And so we decided to get back together in January of this year and do five more songs. And then that's that's what became the record. As far as the preparation for it, there was very, very little of it. The only song that was written or had like the general idea was Solitarily a Future Renounced. I had the main riff for that in my head for months, but I wrote three the three songs in last September. I wrote it in a two-hour session the night before I left to drive to Philadelphia. And then the other five songs, same thing. I spent two or three hours the night before, wrote everything, got, you know, the, the how the structure, how I wanted, you know, certain aspects of it to sound wrote all that down in a notebook, hopped in my car and and drove up to Philadelphia. I'm not too sure about Alex's process. We really just, we spend more time talking about like trying to turn each other uh, onto new bands or, you know, helping each other complete our record collections (laughs) more so than any kind of like really you know, deep recording stuff. We'll talk about like references, like, well, what do you want this to sound like? Here's what I can do. But I mean, he has grown over the last 10 years into, you know, he used to just do recording on his computer in in his bedroom. And now he's got a a lot of equipment as far as, as I'm aware. And he's just really grown into being able to take something that was recorded in, you know, basically a rehearsal room, the the studio that, that we used for, Ruiner in Philadelphia is a part of, of a warehouse where, you know, it's a one room studio that people either rent out for rehearsals or they do kind of, you know, demo recording. We did the split with integrity there and he's able to, t- to take that basis and then transform it into how Ruiner came out. I mean, he could ask me like, well, what, how do you want the drums to sound? I'd be like, I need to sound, have that, that, Gorgoroth kind of click to it from, you know, like their first, second album, the, the whole Grieg Holland kind of sound. And so he's just spent enough time because, I mean, he isolates himself. He doesn't really go out very often. He spends so much time thinking about music and, and how to record it and how to make things sound that he's become probably the easiest quote unquote producer that I've worked with in a long time. You mentioned that your bandmates provide an outsider perspective to to your songs that you didn't have in in the early years of Krieg. Uh, what was Alex's response to to some of this material that you came in with? And I'm curious if he if he had any suggestions on songs that made their way to the album. This was so we we'd gotten together and recorded the Split of Crucifixion Bell about a year prior, and he had a lot of suggestions and. It, it really was more like kind of it, it felt like I was knocking the, the rust off because it had been so long since I've written anything. So it was kind of like helping me out there. Whereas this time around for Ruiner, it wasn't that he had like an outsider perspective. He was just 
he was as excited about the songs as I was. And he knew that it would inspire him to do exactly what he needed to do for it. And that if he presented with me with something that I didn't like, I could tell him and his feelings wouldn't be hurt and he would change it. But there was none of that with, with Ruiner. I mean, it was, we were both basically on the, the same page for the album. It sounds like he had free reign as a producer in terms of crafting the sound of the album. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that, that is his domain now. And since, you know, he, he has all this equipment at home, it's not like he, he's paying any kind of, of studio rent or, or any of that. So he has as much time with all of his projects, not just Krieg, but, but everything else he does. He has as much time as he needs to be able to play around with things and really construct the sound that he's looking for. And he's one of a, a very few amount of people that I can hand something to something of mine to, and I will trust whatever his judgment is as far as additions or how it, it should sound just because he's really developed such a really keen ear for these things that it, it's just, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about him trying to put his stamp on things that, that might not be good. Like you hear horror stories about producers and, and engineers and whatnot that really just try to, you know, enforce their, their own opinions and, and, and will on, on certain things where bands are like, no, that that's not what I you know envisioned at all, but too bad. You know, engineers already kind of plugged it in. He's, you know, he, he's a lot easier to work with. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't tell you, Hey, this is how it's, it has to be. It's a very open kind of communication. And as a member of Krieg and part of the live lineup, he's he's got a good sense of what Krieg is and, and what it isn't, right? No, oh, yeah. I mean, we've had over you know the years, we've had very deep philosophical discussions about just my my history with the band, my intention with it, uh, my relationship to to black metal, his relationship to black metal, and and just what we want out of the music that we do. Was there anything he brought uh, production wise to the album that surprised you? Yes and no. What surprised me, and it also didn't surprise me, was just his level of skill at, at being able to match sounds to the, the references that I provided and his ability to, to hear things in what I'd written to layer over it. I mean, there, there's just some of his solos that are layered over things are, are, are just it's the kind of thing that I would hear in my head and I would have absolutely no way of expressing how to do it. And so he, he surprises me constantly with his growth, but it's also not a surprise because I know that, you know, he's an exceptional musician and an exceptional creative person. And so we haven't even seen, you know, the, the beginning of his potential being realized.
do you want to say anything about the gentleman who handled the mastering? Oh, so Dan is pretty much Profound Lore's house master. I, I enjoy his uh, his death metal band, Crucive Mentium. I know I probably just butchered the how to say it. <laughs> I don't know how to say it either. All right, well then then we're on the same page. It begins with a C <laughs> and ends with an M. So, Crucimentum, Crucimentum, Crucimentum. I don't know. <laughs> it's just it's one of those death metal bands that has like like the real solid foundation in, in old like the old UK style, which is, yeah, is yeah. probably my my favorite style. So you know I, I've been a fan of of what he does musically for a long time and. His mastering, I mean, he's done fantastic work for Profound Lore. So when we were ready to, to get things mastered and Chris, you know, said, well, we'll, we'll use Dan, I just, I was completely fine with that. And it was very, the communication was, hey, I want it to sound like this. You know, can can you make it sound like, again, to beat a dead horse, but, you know, the old Gorgoroth stuff, but with a, a heavier kind of modern sheen to it. That was basically the the description that i gave him and like two three days later he's like here you go and it's exactly what i had asked for i have no idea how he does it. mastering is one of those things that just completely confounds me i'm not that that clear on what it is either it does seem like it's specific to the platform like there's there's different masters for vinyl than there is for digital and you know it has to be mastered for cds different as well there's even a master for cassettes all i know is is a, a Mastering can make or break a lot of records because you can have a fantastic record, but if the mastering is piss weak, then it's it's really going to suffer. Whereas you can have a, I, I know a lot of people aren't huge fans of, of remasters because they feel that you know you're going in and tinkering with something that didn't need to be tinkered with. But there's some records that when they go in and remaster it, it just really makes it you know for lack of a better term, sing. I mean, the remaster of the first two Satyricon records that they just did. A year or two ago, I mean, those are already fantastic records as is, but the mastering of it just gives it like this this heft, this weight, and so that's about the the long and short of, of what I know about mastering. It can either elevate or sink a record. I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll speak to a band and they'll they'll say that they wanted the master to sound like the mix, sound more like the mix. And you know, it, it, it's just a, a big question mark over my head because I'm like, doesn't the mix already sound like the mix? Why do you need the mix to sound, you know? But you know, mastering seems to be like the last, you know, it's like it's like putting the glaze on the donut. You know what I mean? Like, like really making the product ready for uh, for mass consumption. I mean, that's a beautiful way of putting it. It really is. It's it's the the final step. I mean, that is when you kind of just you know you step back and you're done with with the music you've you've done everything that you can it's it's the the last last thing it's the cherry on top and then you know it's time to focus on other things so we spoke about the krieg live experience you have some shows coming up in november uh, do you want to say where you're playing yeah so we haven't played live since 2017 we did the red river fest in austin texas so it's it's been a minute and so we're going to be doing shows November 10th, 11th, and 12th, which is the longest kind of run that you can expect from a bunch of middle-aged guys with uh, families and jobs. <laughs> but we're playing at the Kingsland in Brooklyn on the 10th, and we're, that's going to be with Forest Thrall, Cathedrals in the Night. That's their first show ever, which I'm really excited for. And Satanism, who I've been told is a really fantastic band. Forest Thrall and, and Cathedrals were, were my choices to to be on the, the shows. Uh, Forrester all just had a record come out through Death Prayer that's really good. And Cathedral's had a demo 
two, three years ago that was just depressive black metal without being self-pitying that was just awesome. So I was able to, to talk them into doing a, their, their first live show with us. And then the next night is at dusk in Providence, Rhode Island. And so far, the only band that I have confirmed for that is Black Sorcery, which is just a, a ferocious local band of the area. But I know that they have their first record coming out on Eternal Death Records pretty soon. And then the final night is November 12th, and that's at Kung Fu Necktie in Philadelphia, which is my absolute favorite venue in the entire world to play. And that's with Bastard Cross and, again, with Cathedrals in the Night. And so those will be the the first shows we've done in years, and then we're kind of going to just see where that leads us. Am I crazy or, or has Philly become the metal capital of the U.S.? No, I mean, it, it, it's been steadily doing that for the, the last 10 years or so. I mean, it's been, I mean, you have, you know, Relapse was based out of there. There was always a, a lot of, you know, death metal bands, hardcore bands and, and all that. But then that kind of just fizzled in the early mid 2000s. And then like around like 2009, 2010, you started seeing bands like Sagicacia, Woe, like all these bands are starting to, to pop up and tons of shows lots of really great venues and it's just never really stopped there so it, it it's where you know you people come from you know baltimore to, to hang out there people come from new york to hang out there it, it really is just like this epicenter people come from from richmond where i'm at now up there richmond had for a minute they were you know really really a lot of great bands coming through and a lot of really exciting shit happening and then all the venues closed down and people just stopped really, you know, doing anything interesting here. So Philly is probably the closest metro area to here that has anything going on. I mean, I think Translation Loss is, is based out there. Uh, Horror, Pain, Gore, Death is, is based there as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Relapse, like you mentioned, Decibel. Uh, and Decibel has its, uh, has its vest there every year. Yeah, maybe, maybe I need to take a, a trip out to Philly. Uh, next year i mean it's worth it just for you know the great food and really good good venues i mean I, i've i've played philly probably the most out of any any city that, that i've played kung fu necktie probably the most out of any venue i've ever played and like i said i just absolutely love it there the crowd has it's it's changed because you know 15 years ago it was just a lot of skinheads so shows were not safe to go to it was just not not a real good time and then that shit kind of just got pushed out by you know what at the time were, were all these new kids who are now you know like in their 30s and it's just kind of stayed that way since it's it's a really big union of metal bands punk bands i mean you you have all your your you know goofy scene drama and clicks and, and that shit there but <laughs> i mean for the most part philly is definitely a place that like if you were to come out for decibels doing the uh, 20th anniversary show next year as well as the the beer fest you know you, you come out for that like you'll be able to go to a ton of really good record stores probably a bunch of local shows while you're out it's just a really vibrant city that just hasn't stopped it, it seems that with every successive generation it's just getting more and more cemented as at least on the east coast of the, of the u.s as you know the the metal capital metal brotherly love everyone <laughs> yep exactly so by the time people hear this podcast, Ruiner will be out through Profound Lore Records. Neil, tell everyone how they can get the album. What's the best way to order it? So there are all kinds of ways to order it. This is the first time I've really I've done a record in, in this kind of the streaming digital and, and all that era. 
where you know most of the the interviews I'm doing are on, on podcasts, which is actually really cool. I really appreciate that. So you can listen to it on you know, Spotify, Apple Music, any any of the streaming sites will have it. And if you you know enjoy it and you would like to own it, you can get it through either the Krieg Bandcamp, which is Official dot bandcamp dot com or a profound lore bandcamp which is attached to the creek that is also where you're able to to get the cd there is a link to the vinyl profound lore has a merch table website and that is they have one for north america and one for europe as well so this is the first time that where we've had good access to overseas as, as far as uh, our vinyls concerned in quite a long time which is good since shipping costs have become absolutely crippling from the states so this way we'll be able to to reach people in europe asia australia africa a lot cheaper than if they were to go through north american means you'll also be able to get it you know through amazon and 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 all that kind of stuff it is gonna be pretty much everywhere i know that several of the colors of the vinyl are running pretty low right now i don't know if by the time you know this airs what will be left but we already sold out of decibel did uh, an exclusive variant that was limited to 90 that's sold out there is a red a bone and two variations of uh, red and gray and i know that the red and gray variations are, are really low right now and yeah that is that's my promotional push for where you can purchase my my wares <laughs> and if people want to follow Krieg online what's the best way to do that so I would say Facebook but I just got off of a three-day ban for something that I posted in 2016 so I'd say the best way to follow what we're doing would be my Instagram page and that is look up to see exactly what my Instagram page is called Black underscore house underscore industries on Instagram. You can also follow the official Facebook page. I do try to post on there as often as possible. But like I said, if I caught a three-day ban for something that I posted in 2016, I'm not exactly confident in the, the staying power of that site. There is a Twitter or X or whatever the fuck it's called now. I don't remember what my login for it is, but it posts everything that I post on the Facebook page onto it. So that's a, a way to, to keep in touch as well. And then, I mean, I'm still constantly writing for various websites. So all you really have to do is just Google me. And then that, you know, I, I do my best self-promoting myself wherever possible. So that's a good way to, to follow up as well. Do you have anything coming up in Decibel anytime soon? Nothing. It's the last thing I did was the Justify Your Shitty Taste for the Gorgoroth Under the Sign of Hell 2011. I have a few ideas. I mean, we are approaching Halloween. So I wanted to do a Justify on Dancing 6. But outside of my my monthly column in the print, that, that's pretty much what I have going on there. And then I'm going to be doing, for almost two years, I was doing a column for Invisible Oranges called Noise Pollution. And then I just didn't have the the time due to, to work commitments and, and all that earlier in the year. But fortunately, that's kind of you know changed. I have a little bit more free time now. So I'm going to be doing Noise Pollution again, starting within the next two or three weeks uh, after Ruiner's released. So that'll be popping up on invisible oranges. And then I'm just going to you know, continue to see who is kind enough to offer me spaces to, you know, put down my, my inane bullshit so that, you know, the, the five or six people that actually enjoy what I, I, I write, you know, can, can follow me on that. Well, shit, dude, dreams of consciousness is looking for someone to pick up all the slack that I've been dropping for the last uh, 20 years. <laughs> well, we I mean, even, we, know, can, we can even work out a, a profit share. So, you know, I don't know what 10% of zero is, but you're, you're more than uh, welcome to have it. 
I mean, that's a more generous offer than I've received from many websites. So that that is that's definitely <laughs> something to consider. Is there anything else you want to say? No, man. I mean, that we we covered pretty much everything. I mean, really, all I want to say is is just thank you for the opportunity to get to do an interesting uh, interview on a, a podcast. I mean, this is like I said, this is is kind of new waters for me. I've done like radio interviews and stuff, and I was you know on radio for a long time, so I'm I'm comfortable w- with talking. But it's just I really. We're in an age right now where where people really don't read anything anymore. So you know, they're they're more apt to check things out through you know podcasts such as is your own. And so just you know having somebody give me the opportunity to sit and, and prattle on for an hour or so, you know, like it, it really you know it, it it means a lot. Yeah, well appreciate having you. Thanks, Neil. Thank you.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.